Good morning, everybody. This podcast was made straight after watching the Community Shield between Manchester City and Liverpool because talking about Tier 1 teams today is going to be a very exciting prospect. Now, I say this because we all love Tier 1 teams. We all love Chelsea, Spurs, Liverpool and City every season, right? And it really just comes down to timing, when to pick up two defenders, when to pick up two midfielders and really, it the story of the title challenges just comes down to playing the right tactics or having the right batch of players come through for you at the right time. So without further ado, I will talk about the expected title challenges for this season, which include perennial challenges, Man City and Liverpool, as well as a permanently good but not so great Chelsea side and Spurs, who now under their new manager Conter for half a season, is starting to reap results combined with some really good signings. On we go. Tier 1 teams, here we go. The crux of this podcast will revolve around Man City and Liverpool simply because there are so many unknowns that revolve around Chelsea and Spurs. And many a case, we find that the plan A's for Chelsea and Spurs will not surface until game weeks 9, just after the second international break. So at this stage, we will basically examine how Tier 1 teams, title challengers like City and Liverpool, behave at the beginning of each season. Now, what's relieving about this season in particular is that Liverpool and City basically have retained most of their squad going into the season. Now, I know Liverpool have lost Sadio Mane, but by and large, their core three midfielders are kept. None of their central defenders have a massive injury. Allison is still there. Klopp is largely retained the 4-3-3, while Man City themselves only have Laporte, who is out until September. So really, we are assuming that they will pick up where they left off based on last season. Now, Let's start with Man City because basically the question on everyone's lips is do we go two defenders, do we go midfielders or do we play it safe with one each? And really, based on the community shield right now, Haaland is basically being groomed into the next Aguero but slightly taller, slightly lankier and a bit more impatient which might be a good thing. So the thing about Haaland versus Aguero, let's address right now. Their makeup is different in the sense that Aguero relies on his lack of height to work balls to his advantage in the sense that his low center of gravity enables him to have great acceleration compared to Haaland who is a sprinter over 30 to 50 yards. So on the ball, Aguero already has massively different traits that City utilise, especially as a pivot. What you will notice is that Haaland would rarely hold the ball up front despite his big size because defenders nowadays are able to put strikers larger than them at bay simply by knocking them off balance. So Haaland in that sense is working on his positioning as a fox in the box under Pep Guardiola, simply put. Now, as for the rest of City... What's interesting to pick up here is that traditionally when City have all their defenders available, they keep so many clean sheets. It's unreal. Like according to my notes here, 
Oh, their opening loss aside last season to Spurs, they basically did not concede one XG per game all the way until October, ironically, against Burnley. But that's how solid City are at exercising control. According to my notes as well, I can see that they basically did not concede a single big chance, or at least, sorry, one single big chance across the first six to seven game weeks before they started kicking in the third gear, really. So, at this stage, if you want to invest $5 million into Kyle Walker since he started against Liverpool, I think that is a very sound strategy if you are not convinced by the likes of Gabriel from Arsenal, Trippier from Newcastle, Cash from Aston Villa, and maybe Zinchenko, right? So, if you want to get... Kyle Walker as a cheap way into Man City clean sheets from game weeks 1 to 8. Big yes from me. Now, um, this comes with a caveat that City will concede more goals without their first choice backline. With Laporte out until September, it's likely that Nathan Ake will come in. And I'm not sure what Ake's price is at the top of my head. But what I did notice in the community showed itself that he is one of the benefactors from corners in particular. Now, what you notice about Man City is that they do thrash tier 4 teams in particular and they have a game week 2 matchup against Bournemouth. So if you're looking at a Man City thrashing where they typically beat a relegation candidate 5-0, you're looking at a goal basically scored from a corner. So last season, it was... Laporte that did it early doors and the season before that it was John Stones and this season based on Haaland's positioning on the near post it looks like Ake and Rodri are the ones that either charge the far post or stand on the center of the six yard line while Ruben Diaz is the one occupying the opposition goalkeeper. Liverpool's plan A was by and large the same, with Mohamed Salah basically targeting Joao Cancelo non-stop on the flanks, with Trent Alexander-Arnold supplying the through balls, if not hanging near the edge of the penalty area, whipping in crosses as he usually would. Now, this playmaker role basically is not too different from last season, but what has significantly changed is the role of Jordan Henderson, See, the thing about having an obvious plan A is that you're going to need really good support, a really good supporting cast. And this is where Jordan Henderson's role is so crucial because his decoy runs basically picks apart the important cog that enables Salah and Trent. So in this particular case, with Salah occupying Cancelo, it was no surprise that City's left winger, Jack Grealish, helped him out lots. So... In a lot of instances, if Liverpool didn't win the ball off City, Salah would basically be 1v2 against Cancelo and Grealish. So with Trent Alexander-Arnold free, the onus was on defensive midfielder Rodri to push up. If not, Bernardo Silva had to track back to stop Trent from putting crosses into the box. Now, this did not happen, mainly because Jordan Henderson's runs were diagonal and straight into the central defensive midfield area. And that is what gave Trent all the time and space to have his chance created for Robertson basically two minutes before the goal. And then his own, you know, with the first time shot into the far corner. So 
really, Liverpool's plan A has not gone away. And basically, they have a very good supporting cast that will enable plan A to work. Now, plan B was a lot more interesting because the unfortunate thing about Liverpool is that they very rarely extend their lead unless it's through penalties. And, you know, the scoreline would suggest that Salah did get his goal through a penalty in the 80-something minute. But more encouraging is that their directness has definitely not changed. If you were to see, no matter who was playing up front as a number nine, whether it was Firmino, whether it was Nunes, you basically saw one direct ball over the top with multiple sprinters charging in behind. So the only thing that I'm wary of is Andrew Robertson's lack of commitment into the box during a counter-attack. But that's okay because that means that the likes of Luis Diaz and Nunes himself will definitely be amongst the chances. So... At this stage, if you want to open with Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold, you'd basically be targeting teams who are weak on the flanks. But that's about it, really. Because, as we noted last season, Liverpool's fullbacks did not really come into prominence until their run of clean sheets. I think the only game where the fullbacks delivered or Trent delivered without a clean sheet was when Liverpool lost to West Ham at the London Stadium where Trent got a free kick goal and an assist in the process. So at this stage, yeah, Trent is crucial. Salah as a penalty taker cannot be understated, especially when Liverpool need a goal. But if your third option is Nunes instead of Luis Diaz, you would be completely vindicated. If your third option is Andrew Robertson, then you'd be committed to playing five at the back, basically. Okay, so we will conclude this section and then we will touch a little bit on Chelsea and Spurs. Okay, a quick word on Chelsea and Spurs before we wrap up. Now, Chelsea and Spurs basically relied largely on their first 11 to deliver results. And for Chelsea, the plan became crystal clear when James and Chilwell were the unstoppable forces that we may or may not see this season. Now, the thing about Chelsea is that they've kept their cards close to their chest, especially after signing two centre-backs. And what I have to emphasise here is that when you play a system with three centre-backs, the role of the outside centre-backs are absolutely crucial in maintaining control of the game. Because if you have a three centre-back system, they usually have a spare man in the back, whether it's against one forward or two forwards or even three forwards, they are basically expected to dominate that part of the pitch. So the question really comes down to whether they can pull it off. And then on top of this, because you have lack of men up front, can you use your attacking three or attacking four with including the wingbacks to basically generate enough chances? Now, with Reese James' injury history, I'm. it's not surprising to see him pop up at right centre-back occasionally. So if you want to invest in James uh, in Ben Chilwell early in the season, that's completely fine. The question really comes down to whether at $6 million you'd be pressed to own someone cheaper or someone more expensive because $6 million is basically only owned by the Chelsea wing-backs and Joel Matip, if I'm not mistaken. So in conclusion, with systems that have three... At the back, you're basically, number one, 
committing to a safety first policy. And then secondly, you're relying on your talent up front to score goals. Now, this applies to Spurs as well, who fortunately have the goal scoring prowess of Son, Kane, and now Richarlison joining them in attack. So game week one will not see Richarlison feature, but Kulusevsky is definitely going to pick up the mantle against Southampton. The question is how? Because Southampton, as most veterans know, are a risk-reward style of team. So the question really is, will Southampton go with that death ball approach from game week one itself? Because Southampton, away from home, last season against tier one teams, have actually held the likes of Man City and Liverpool and Man United to draws. So now, with Chelsea and Spurs' respective three-in-the-back systems, the difference comes down to what they do up front, where Chelsea basically rely on now Raheem Sterling to replace the likes of Ziyech and Werner to create chances out wide. So, will Sterling have majority of the ball? Based on their matches against Club America, it doesn't seem like it. It looks like Tuchel is planning to utilise Raheem's greatest strength, which is his sprints, his diagonal sprints into the six-yard box to generate high XG chances for himself. Who creates these high XG chances will basically be the first bandwagon underneath six million in the midfield zone. So keep a lookout for that. And at the same time with Spurs, the question always comes down to whether Spurs can actually thrash teams below them. So that remains to be seen, but with if you're, if you're going with the safety-first approach, it's always good to own a penalty taker in the form of Harry Kane. Otherwise, you can go all out and own Hyung min Sun, Perisic, Doherty, it, and because Spurs just have so many avenues of goal creation that you only pick them up, you only double up on their attack if they are expected to score two to three goals. And that's all she wrote. In conclusion, Liverpool, Man City, absolute five-star assets with some really tasty fixtures coming out. The onus is on the FPL manager to predict the score and it's more likely that City and Liverpool will keep clean sheets more than anyone else. So really the question is, do you double in defence and pick up the likes of Kyle Walker or will you go heavy and pick up the likes of Kevin De Bruyne who will deliver when times are tough? Now, with Liverpool, Salah and Trent are essential as always. And the third option really comes down to who you foresee will benefit from TAA's positioning. Okay, on to Chelsea and Spurs. And the final word is that with three at the back systems, you are basically relying on who they will rely on, who they will count on up front to deliver the goods. Whether it's Chelsea's wingbacks or whether it's Spurs front two remains to be seen, but the creator of their chances will likely be the first bandwagon that will take off. This is a special thank you from myself for listening to all four parts of this series. It has been fantastic to study, and honestly, it has been fantastic to observe how hierarchical the Barclays Premier League has been since the early 2000s. So 
Tomorrow will be the release of a new four-part series on how to do well in FPL specifically. And before I go, once again, thank you for listening in so far. And if you appreciate the content, the more visual material will be on my Patreon, which is on my Twitter profile. Until tomorrow, thanks again.